Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. It is great to be back. Things have been extremely busy here for me. Um with all the prep and planning of the Canadian Shield Bikepacking Summit. Um, I have been swamped. I've been wanting to get out a couple of these episodes that had been recorded already uh, a little earlier, and I'm still working on it. I'm still working on it. Um, I, you know, that's part of life. I, I enjoy being busy. But now we're also doing report cards. They're due this week sometime. Uh, not good that I don't know exactly. I think Wednesday and, um, pretty much done, but it makes it really, really busy for like a couple weeks before that. So yeah. Um, super stoked. Uh, you know, I just released a new Canadian shield bikepacking summit episode, but I'll just dive into it a little bit here. Um, I put my heart and soul into figuring out how to prepare for this event and trying to make it the best event I possibly could make it. And, um, Ultimately, I created an incredible event, but it would have been out of many people's means to to attend such an event. And uh, after having received some feedback from friends um, and uh, some long conversations, I decided to completely scrap the budget and start from scratch and just basically... Um, you know, just look at what was absolutely necessary, what was non-negotiable in my mind, and then start going from there and try to make it as as budget-friendly as possible so as many different people as possible could attend. Um, you know, the idea of having uh, an expensive event that only brings in one type of person or having something that was cheaper that could accommodate all kinds of people from, uh, you know, of every kind of financial mean. Um, what else am I thinking here? Um, yeah, just, you know, everybody. Um, not sure I've got the words anymore. <laughs> I'm tired. Um, but anyways, yeah, I, I've redid it completely and I'm super happy at how, where it's landed and I've received nothing but positive feedback so far. So that's really great. Um, essentially bringing the price of the event down to $129 and doing the early bird for $99 rather than 20%, which was an odd number, like 103, uh, or something like that. I decided to just go with $30 off, which is pretty much 25%, but, um, 
I, I, th I think that is, I don't know. Don't, for, don't, don't judge my math. Anyway, it's $30 off, uh, an even 99 for all the early bird tickets. Um, I mean, they are limited because if I only sold early bird tickets, uh, the event would probably lose money and, uh, my wife would kill me. So yeah, I'm super stoked. Um, everything there is grand, and I will carry on and stop talking about it for a while so I can just, like, uh, feel less stressed and more normal. I got out for an amazing... Uh, finally, I'm feeling better. Mostly better. Um, my my throat is still a little weird, so when I'm doing some sports and stuff, uh, it's easy to start, like, not feeling like I have enough oxygen coming in. I obviously had covid and uh, I'm still recovering from that. I mean, I'm feeling pretty good. It's just the occasional time. Uh, for instance, this past Saturday, I went to Le Harfang, which is a golf course that is turned into a fat bike and snowshoe park, basically, in the winter and managed by Le Harfang. And it was really fun. They had an event. They had all kinds of bike shops there. I, I had a chance to ride with a Jean Villeneuve, who was uh, recently on the podcast not too long ago, and it's the first time we actually rode together ever in like two years of knowing, knowing each other. And then after he left and we did that awesome group ride where I just uh, lightly tagged a tree with my face. Um, <laughs> yeah, my lip is still sore. Uh, I saw another buddy, Carl, and his girlfriend, Emily, and I joined them on a little group ride for like another hour. I had a blast. What a great day. Um, the weather was perfect, was just below zero. Um, you know, we had fresh snow. It had been groomed, though. It was super fun. A couple hundred cyclists out, uh, just constantly coming across people and meeting new people. And, um, yeah, what a what a great event. So I'm super happy to have been there and uh, learned some fat biking skills because there's things I'm still not great at. Like, it's very easy to put too much front brake, and then you just go down in a pile of powder or into a tree um so you got to be really sensitive on those front brakes and in brakes in general right kind of use it like a use use let the motor slow you down rather than hammering on the brakes i guess is the the general consensus there and um and when you're in flowy single track stuff going through woods and whatnot it's very easy to to just pick up a bit too much speed and and, and lose it big time but had a blast um Still got to work on the feet thing. I think it's just the boots. I think I just need to change boots because they're not quite doing it. Um, either I'm going to invest in some 45 North or probably just go get some Baffins or something because they're, they're more affordable and they'd be a great product. So, And then, uh, and then do what Doug does, uh, which we talked about in this podcast today, is uh, hefty bag glue those suckers up and uh, make them super, super waterproof. And it also holds in the heat better and all that. So yeah, in this episode, I'm really stoked to have a chance to really dive deep into cold biking with Doug Dunlop, uh, a veteran winter biker with decades of experience riding in the winter. Doug was actually one of the first people to reach out for, with advice when I complained of cold feet this winter, um, back when I first got the fat bike. Doug has participated in numerous winter biking events, countless overnighters, and was also on the start line of the very first Iditarod Trail Invitational sorry, after a change from being called the Idita Bike. Doug is also an advocate for getting children involved in winter exploration, and when his own children were younger, he took them on multiple overnight adventures, um, I think probably countless, and 
on his spare time, he actually makes custom winter riding gear, which he sells on his site, coldbike.com. Uh, he also has a pretty, it's a pretty in-depth and amazing blog. And even just in our discussion, he talked about blog posts that I have to read. So, you know, there's so much to say and, um, and anything he says today, I think is just the tip of the iceberg. So I, I'd highly recommend people check out his blog. If you're into fat biking, winter biking, cold biking, uh, cold commuting, any of that stuff, um, I think he's done it all and he's got a ton of, ton of, ton of information to share. <clears throat> so, yeah, without any further ado, Doug, welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. Hi, Chris. It's good to be here once again. And uh, for those of you guys that are listening in, uh, we were about 50 seconds into a conversation when I realized his mic was muted and I was like, oh my God. So uh, we were just talking about kids and sleeping outside in the cold and how it's a, it's a thing in, in um, Scandinavia, you know, they, they just leave the stroller outside the cafe and go out there occasionally check on them make sure they're good but if the baby's bundled they're they're going to be pretty well off yeah and that's that's what exactly what i did with uh fiona where i'd uh you know literally she would never make it around the block mm. sometimes you know if she if she was being persistent you know maybe three quarters of the way around the block but usually uh within that first you know hundred meters she would be sound asleep and she would nap for an hour every day that's amazing yeah jasmine is jasmine's more like if she's in her stroller she's probably going to pass out like if i have it in a bike the the chariot and whatnot she's five minutes in that's it she's gone most of the time but otherwise she she might just she's pretty quiet like she's good yeah sometimes we do it with the uh with the sled and stuff and but man, it's handy because you don't have to, you know, I'd be at the zoo with my friends and they'd be like, I have to rush home because the baby's nap time is one thirty-five. Oh yeah. And you're just like, ah, oh, she'll just sleep when she's ready to. Yeah. If she wasn't already asleep, <laughs> but your kids, are, your kids are all grown up now, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. They're 19 and 15. So they're, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, uh, independent well i mean they still live here but yeah they uh they can do their own thing all right so doug why don't you uh tell us a bit about yourself who you are and uh where you're from and all that fun stuff and uh maybe a bit about um you know your own personal journey growing up and uh like was your family adventurous and whatnot so uh i'm doug dunlop uh i live in calgary alberta canada and I, uh, to call my family adventurous uh, would be a bit of a stretch. They're um, more of the uh, the motorhome, and uh, now they've got a big fifth wheel uh, uh, crowd. Or you know, and they're they're part of a you know a fifth wheel or a trailer club. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> so they they do a lot of you know like car camping. Yeah. But uh, very, very, uh, uh, very seldom do they. I think they did the Bowron Lake circuit one time in a in a canoe, and that's about the extent of their backcountry experience. Okay, and how was that growing up with I, that? Like, what? Uh, so, I guess even growing up was majority was like uh, tent camping or car camping, like that, or yeah. So I kind of 
you know, bowed out of family vacations around 14. And I was, you know, I was always in the Boy Scouts and things like that. So we would go, you know, a bit of backcountry camping, a bit of, uh, a bit with my friends where, you know, we didn't list somebody's dad to come backcountry camping with us. And, um, yeah, we just go for the weekend. And oh, that's cool. And I feel like, time. I know, I know you're a little bit older than me, but I feel like, you know, growing up that region of, you know, Canmore, Banff and all those things that aren't too far away. Um, they were still like, they weren't the major tourist attractions they are now. So they were a little bit more rustic and it had a little bit more of an adventurous feel to them. That's my impression. Yeah, that's that's a fairly accurate impression, especially the Kananaskis, um, but uh, Banff National Park too. If you were, um, even five years ago, if I was going to a backcountry campsite, a popular backcountry Sorry, you didn't hear me. I had it muted. <laughs> I did. Oh, I did. It didn't record. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we uh, even five years ago, you'd go uh, backcountry camping with, uh, um, uh, in Banff, and uh, you could go on the most popular day of the year, and book the night before or the day of oh wow and uh now it's gotten a lot a lot busier of course now where you have to uh you know some of the spots yet you have to book weeks in advance yeah yeah we came up to uh we came up to the area we came up to the area was it two summers ago and you know, you really struggled to find a camp spot. Like just, yeah, um, it was near nearly impossible. One moment, I have to pause this and sort this dog out. All right, okay. and um, yeah, so I was just saying that. Uh, yeah, I remember traveling up to Calgary and you know doing Banff and Jasper and stuff a couple summers back, and it was it was really hard to manage to find a way to to do some camping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody's seeing that now. And, uh, you know, the the back country has gotten to be like that. It used to be just the front country was like mm. that. And now the back country, too. It sort of exploded maybe, maybe five years ago. Mm, okay. And uh, it's, it's only gotten worse from there, where last year I was, uh, I was on the the backcountry booking site for the national park at uh, I think it was three in the morning when they opened the queuing and they turned on the booking at, at nine in the morning. And uh, so that's wild. it was, yeah, essentially a day's worth of, of time uh, to try and book. Uh, and I got a couple of trips booked, but then, uh, we we had to skip a couple of them. Tanya uh, broke her foot. Oh no! And uh, yeah, so she couldn't. Uh, uh, those were all bike or uh, backpacking trips. Yeah, backpacking yeah, trips. and backcountry for those that aren't unaware is is basically like places that aren't accessible by vehicle, so you really have to hike into them or canoe in, right? Yeah, yeah, 
in in Alberta, most of them are are hiking. Okay. And uh, uh, in Jasper, there's like Moline Lake is is canoe mm-hmm. in, and then we could we go to Minnewanka quite a bit, um, and we could canoe in there, but they allow bikes, so. Yeah, Moline Lake um, is pretty beautiful. We were there. We took the ferry. We we're like, let's go full tourist mode. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a reason they put the tourist boat there. Uh, Lake Minnewanka in, in Banff is about the same way. Yeah, it's just gorgeous. They they put the boat there for the reason, and uh, but if you go there in winter, the boat's not running, and you have the whole place to yourself. Ah, nice. And just take your fat bike and ride across the ice and find a place to camp, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We've uh, we've done that a number of times. That's cool. Sometimes you have to take the trail because the ice isn't always reliable. Um, but usually a few people will have snowshoed the trail and, uh, you know, otherwise you just push. Yeah, yeah. And so did you grow up in Calgary then? Uh, pretty much. We moved here when I was 12. So. Okay. From Ontario? It seems everybody's from Ontario. So, From from Quebec. <laughs> oh, Quebec. There we go. <laughs> from, from Quebec. From Montreal. Okay. That's that's the other place Calgarians are from. Ah. Uh, yeah. It's like every, every, pers- every second person you meet is like, oh, yeah, well, I came from Ontario. I came from where? <laughs> They're never from British Columbia. <laughs> yeah. Calgary's a little different, maybe. Um, so how did you, uh, you know, how did your journey into, I guess you said you were around 14, you guys started doing more uh, backcountry adventures and stuff. Um, at yeah. what point did you start, did you do any, did you ever do any traditional like bike touring or has it always been kind of the winter stuff? Uh, always kind of the winter stuff. Um, I, I kind of got in the back door of uh, bike touring mm-hmm. where I was commuting uh, back and forth to work and uh, somebody at the bike shop uh, one day said, uh, or are you going to, are you going to be like those idiots doing the Iditarod trail? And uh, cause you're commuting in winter. I, cause I was commuting in winter and this is, you know, this is kind of in the infancy of the, uh, of the internet. So, you know, things like that didn't just pop into your, browser um i that was the first i had heard of it and i was like what do you mean and he said yeah the i did a bike they uh race the same route as the sled dogs i was like people do this that sounds awesome yeah and and so i uh i i found out that it existed and uh immediately uh started training for it and signed up the next year Oh, wild. I, um, I was just talking about you this evening and, and my, my sister-in-law is like, I don't understand why people do such crazy adventures. Like why not just do normal sports? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, <laughs> I was like, because there's so much more to life. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's really interesting. And we'd definitely get into the Iditarod, um, that, you know, your kind of whole exposure to everything was, is, was commuting and then winter biking. Cause you know, you, you created the website coldbike.com and yeah. it's really in depth. It's like super in depth blog. It covers kind of everything. And, and, you know, you shared, and what I really appreciated was when I talked about my cold feet and you shared, 
you know, a link to your page where you talked about that in depth and gave advice and a couple other people reached out too. And that's kind of what I love about the community, you know, and I think, I think the fat biking community is even more so of that because it's still a smaller niche thing, right? So the bigger it grows, it seems sometimes the less people want to share. And then all of a sudden when things are still really small, it's like, you know, the passion and to, to share that information is there. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think too, in the sort of, especially the ultra endurance fat bike stuff, there's, there's so much kind of risk associated with it. Um, in that, you know, you can end up, you know, with a, you know, even if you got relatively minor injury, you know, compound that with frostbite or hypothermia, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you could really, um, you know, in the races, like the, the fat pursuit, I know in one of the races down East, um, and I actually, um, pulled this rule from my time. They actually, if you stop to help a racer, they take that off your overall time. Oh, okay. Just cause of safety. Right. So yeah, just for, just for cause safety of safety. Mm-hmm. Like, so, you know, you can't just pass somebody by and leave them hypothermic or um, hallucinating or anything like that. You, yeah. You really have to have <clears throat> Yeah, and a little rule like that actually can go a long ways to encouraging people to help, you know, because somebody who might be competing for a top spot, it's a, it's a, I mean, the moral question is not hard. The moral thing is to stop and help, but that's not always what goes through people's heads, especially if they're tired, they're fatigued, they're hungry, and, and they want to get done, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or if the, if the victim is, uh, is cranky, there was, uh, there was an incident about 20 years ago where, um, yeah, somebody passed a, a, uh, hallucinating and hypothermic and, uh, um, really, really cranky, uh, racer mm. who bas- basically told them to fuck off. And, uh, he didn't want help. Well, I don't need your help. And it was clear that he needed help. <laughs> yeah. And did they stay to help him or did they just like, okay, we're out of here. They, they knew they were about ten uh, K from the, from one of the checkpoints. So they could uh, just go forward and give them a town. Yeah. Yeah. So they went forward and they sent somebody back with a snowmobile. Okay. That's good. To, uh, <clears throat> to find them. So what was your, what was your first kind of like, overnight winter expedition like um maybe let's say multi oh, no i mean it doesn't even have to be multi-day what was your first really dive into like overnight fat biking or overnight advent ex- expedition style or winter pursuits type thing so before i even got a, well before fat bikes even really existed um i was you know can can i do this iti thing or well before that it was i did a bike you know Will I be able to mm-hmm. do the I did a bike? And so I thought, well, I, I better go on a couple of overnighters just to make sure my my equipment is up to it and I'm up to it. And so I I rode uh, there's there's a few places um, at the time they hadn't it hadn't occurred to anyone that you'd ride a bike up there, so they hadn't made rules against it. Um, so there used to be a bunch of of really good trails that you could, you know, ride overnighters or, or three or four days even. Uh, 
So I rode over, um, uh, what's it called, Elk Pass mm, into okay. BC from Alberta. Um, did that a, a few times. Yeah. You know, not on the cross country tree ski track set, of course, but um, yeah, used to be able to go over there and uh, you can ride all the way into uh, Elkford or, or even down to Fernie. Oh, wow. Cool. On that, uh, on that pass. And uh, there's, there's a couple of like official campgrounds along the way, even. And uh, so I did that a few times and then um the kind of close to home gem i almost think of it as my home trail is the elbow loop which is uh in the summer it's uh 44k loop has three official backcountry campgrounds on it without oh, that's cool. and everything and um in the winter it's a legal snowmobile trail so it does get I won't say groomed, but it at least gets packed. Yeah. And it's not a really popular snowmobile trail. So you usually have, um, it's not very chewed up. Yeah. Um, cause they, you know, they will have <clears throat> passed if you, if you go out there on a, on a weeknight, you know, they, they won't have passed, uh, since the weekend. Mm-hmm. And, uh, also because it's, it's not a very exciting, it's, um, I don't think you have much of it uh, out, out in Ontario, but here we have a lot of these um, powder sleds where they have deep um, paddle tracks, and their big thing is, uh, you know, climbing up into the alpine, into the powder bowls, and and um, top marking where they race up the side of the mountain. Oh yeah, I've never even um, heard of it. <laughs> and anyways, because the elbow loop doesn't have any of that. Um, the the sleds are all freight sleds, or uh, or at least standard track sleds, and uh, they don't really chew up the trail as much okay. as uh, as some. So it's it's a total gem. <clears throat> like it's probably rideable fifty percent of the time. Okay. So that's one big thing too is like in, in out, out there you're allowed on like it's it's shared right like a bicycle is allowed on a snowmobile trail um I mean it is at your yeah. own risk and you'd be stupid not to have lights and stuff on blinking to to raise a, to to show yourself right but it's allowed Yeah it's allowed and that trail like honestly I've never seen a snowmobile on it at night and like the the a busy weekend, we'll see three snowmobiles go through. Oh, okay, yeah, maybe because also the, maybe the distance of it is you know people want to go for a longer distance. They want to fly as fast as they can on the bike and you know on the snowmobile. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the the uh, like as a as a snowmobile trail, it's it's really scenic, mm-hmm. but it it doesn't attract like the the crowds that you see. Uh, I feel like that's one of the big problems in Quebec is like ATVs and snowmobiles have so much power within the province in terms of, you know, because they have all these clubs and they just have a a little bit of a kind of a political power. So it's like, you know, fat bikes are not allowed on snowmobile trails most of the time. Um, You're not cross country skis are not allowed on snowmobile trails. Bicycles are not allowed on ATV trails. Like, you know, there's just limited places because they kind of control it all, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we see a bit of that in BC. It's, it's, you know, you're still allowed to, to bike and, and hike and cross country ski on uh, their trails, but, um, trails BC, uh, decided maybe five years ago that they weren't going to enforce the no quads rule. Okay. Um, oh, I see. Be- because the, the quad clubs would go, they, they'd set up big concrete barriers. Quad clubs would follow the, um, the people setting the barriers up, they'd follow the machinery and they'd tie three or four quads in tandem and pull the barriers out of the way. <laughs> That'll do it. That's funny. <laughs> like literally the same afternoon, the barriers went up, they, they came down again. That's insane. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess groups will always kind of push against the rules. I mean, it's just kind of human nature oh, yeah. and um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, the same thing happens on the rail trails here. You know, some of them have sections where, you know, especially when they do stone dusting and, and the quads yeah. come and they really destroy it. You know, if, if, so if they're going to allow quads or not enforce it, then you're better off not to stone dust it because leave it as a normal trail. What it originally was with the rail bed type, heavier, chunkier, yeah. you know, and it'll survive yeah, longer. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So how many, how many events have you participated in over the years? I know you've, you've done the ITI and I'd love to hear more about that, but, uh, what are some of the other events that are going on in the region and, um, yeah. And what kind of stuff have you participated uh, in? Well, so I've, I've run a race of my own, um, three different years. Um, mm. and, uh, so far I've entered three different years and, um, nobody else has. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if you call it an event if nobody else shows up. Um, and, and then probably, yeah, pretty much exclusively, like every once in a while, I'll, I'll sort of, uh, you know, sign up for a, for a smaller, like a, you know, sort of a one day race. I, I did a cyclocross race last year, or, oh, cool. uh, um, you know, um, been sort of dabbling in the, in the gravel scene, but, um, most of what I do is just touring and, um, you know, where I, I ride into the back country and oh, okay. sleep outside and yeah. see the, see the wildlife, see the scenery and, um, yeah. And with a predominant focus of, on winter is like kind of the thing, right? More often than not, I guess. Yeah. Or? Part, partly because, um, it, it's so easy to get bookings and stuff, uh, and, mm. and partly because it's, it's, you know, as soon as the snow flies, there's a bunch of these trails that just essentially get abandoned. They see, you know, maybe 20 snowshoers a week. Um, you know, if it's a busiest trail, yeah, yeah. which and, is perfect. Uh, Cause they'll pack it down just enough for a bike to, to be able to ride on it. Pack right? it down perfectly. And, uh, yeah, then I can bike it. And then there's some spots where I'll, you know, uh, go across the uh, the lakes. Um, there's a few lakes where you're not allowed to ride a fat bike, but um, you can sometimes make it across um, the the lake itself. Um, you're not allowed to ride on the trails, but you are allowed to ride on the water. Ah, okay. On the ice, and uh, so there's a few spots like that where I've 
I've done, uh, yeah, rides across ice. Mm-hmm. And from your earlier, yeah, my, oh, go ahead. My my focus has definitely been, you know, sort of, uh, you know, going out there either on my own or with the kids or with the kids and their friends or whoever. And uh, yeah, going for a long ride. So I guess the... I guess the process of taking care of yourself, which I really want to dive into is like, you know, that self-care because, you know, like we said, it's so much more critical in the, out in the winter than in the summer, you know, um, yeah. from every aspect. And for me, it's definitely the boots I have right now are not optimal. So I have to change them before I do so many bigger events here. Um, they're, they just get too cold too fast. Even with the plastic bag in them, I had toe warmers the other day and, Still not perfect, even though they're rated to quote unquote minus thirty. Um, they're just not cutting it, you know. And uh, yeah, and I feel like it's such a critical thing that I have to address sooner than later. Yeah, that's that's something that pretty much either hands, feet, or both is pretty much what every cyclist runs into when they start riding in the winter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a big chunk of it is active rating on boots is not taking into account the fact that you, you don't really use your feet yeah. on a bike. So you, you sort of want those waiting around for the bus boots rather than the, uh, the active boots. And, and is too big a boot a problem? Like, you know, I was, I was at the store checking out some baffins, you know, I thought it was a really good idea to have an insole that can be removed because it's easier to have it air out and dry out, especially if you're, you're doing a multi-day event uh, or multi-days of riding. It doesn't even have to be an event, right? Um, yeah. But, you know, they're pretty big and bulky. Is that an issue on a fat bike? Is that something people should be concerned about or do they have to be thinking of like, okay, I need the 45 North because they're made, they're streamlined or the Blivet boot or, you know, um, what should we be looking at? Yeah, there's... There's, um, I, I mean, there's a lot of things that Blivet Boot does right. And, and there's a lot of things that the, the 45 North uh, Wolfgar does right as well. And, um, you know, I could probably, I could probably make almost any boot work uh, other than I have crazy wide feet. So mm. I, I need to find something that's available in a, in a super wide size for my feet. But also, like, not just a removable insole, but I want a removable liner because I take it out of my boot. Sorry, that's what I meant. I meant the liner, yeah. 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 So that removable liner is is definitely a a major factor. And then um, most of the Baffin boots have, like, a full rubber uh, rand to them where the whole top of your foot and the front of your foot and the back of your foot are all sort of encased in rubber and so they really if you're not super good with your uh, a vapor barrier inside to keep the sweat from your feet from getting into the insulation and then uh, a second water water barrier on the outside of that liner to to prevent uh, water from getting in. Um, if you're not super careful with that, then you're you're gonna you know you're gonna build up moisture in the insulation, 
and that insulation breaks down you know as soon as there's a, a bridge of moisture between your between the outside and your foot that's that's going to channel heat away from your foot yeah that's right as soon as it's like it's like making a contact and that's game over then right yeah so the um like the 45 north wolf gars i would um i i would actually take the the liners and i'd line the inside of the liner and the outside of the liner with like contractor trash bags or and i think um, i saw a video on that and you just basically can add, like spray adhesive right and like glue them on spray, and spray adhesive glue them on and the the idea is that you know you don't want waterproof breathable like you're you're not going for that gore-tex seal skin sock you're going for outright blocking the moisture from your foot getting out into that insulation okay and your your foot's going to be a little damper but um you know that's all right because if your damp foot is inside dry insulation it's still going to insulate you the uh the way that your wet foot gets your um loses heat is by evaporation yeah so as long as that water has nowhere to go and it's kind of like a dry suit then, right? In a, in a sense. Or a wetsuit. Yeah. Kind of like a wetsuit. The water's there. It warms up to your body's temperature. and Yeah. Yeah. And then there's there's insulation beyond that. And, and usually your feet kind of, I don't know if they stop sweating or just slow down sweating, but um, they, they seem to kind of mellow out after some amount of time. Um, and then, you know, they, they stop. Um, adding moisture because you know after three days my socks in in my um, my boots that I've been using lately have uh, closed cell foam insulation so it's like is that like the intuition liners or yeah so it's like uh, yeah it's like camping cell camping foam like those blue foamies that you mm-hmm. sleep on um, as as a boot liner so they're you know they're totally waterproof Um and they don't, uh, they don't, you know, get super like they don't fill up with water. Right. They uh, they get to a certain level of dampness, and then they just kind of stay there. Interesting. And um, so, were you saying that if you take the liners of the boot and not just the outside with the plastic bag glued in and stuff, but you do flip the liner inside out and do the same thing on both sides, or do you use just a plastic bag around your foot? Um, I, I do the, the liner on, on both, both sides. Um, so I don't, I don't turn the liner inside oh, okay. out to do it. I just kind of spray some glue in and, and slip the, while the glue's still wet, slip the, the, uh, the contractor bag or actually on the inside. Um, I have used, um, and, and, uh, Mike Kuriak used to do this, but you know, the, the plastic liners when you have thermofoam uh formable ski boots okay um not 100 sure but I think i've heard it. Yes. they're like these plastic socks that you put on before you put your feet into the uh hot uh boot liner oh okay and uh and then you, they do it with skates and stuff mm-hmm. too yeah so i i had a bunch of those socks they so just spray it inside and then put your foot right in right yeah just put my foot right in mm, and then cool. uh yeah 
and wear a couple pair of socks it gives a little bit of space type thing just to, to yeah make it a little kinda, bit. you're trying to glue it to the <clears throat> side so mm-hmm. yeah oh that's neat that's a good and idea and then once i've got my boots once i've got my boots set up i you know i don't um I don't mess with like three layers of socks. I have one pair of, you know, my standard socks. My mom knits me socks to fit my feet. Oh yeah. And they're super comfy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I just, just one pair of, um, they're, they're neither thin nor super thick. They're, you know, average socks. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wear those inside whatever, I've chosen. Yeah. I remember when I was in the army, we had, they came out with these new sock systems and then you'd have like this little black polyester liner sock, which was very thin. Um, and you wear, and then you had these, I don't know if they weren't the big gray wool ones, but they were a different midweight green one that you'd put over the liner sock. And then in the Arctic conditions, you'd have this thick wool sock you could put over everything. And, uh, is, is there a material you should avoid on your feet like should you avoid polyester or avoid cotton or um um i i'd probably avoid cotton um you know it 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 gets really wet (laughs) you know soaks up soaks up any sweat from your feet and and so it's you know unless you're deliberately using it as a as a, a layer to soak up moisture um I've I've sometimes um, thrown a cotton T-shirt on when we get sometimes huge temperature swings. Right. So I'll throw a cotton T-shirt on because in the day there's no way to not sweat. Put that cotton T-shirt on, and it'll get you know soaking wet, but it'll prevent the outer layers from from also uh, being soaking wet yeah so they might be a little bit damp and, but they won't be so wet right yeah and then That's as as sun sets i i take that t-shirt out off and uh stuff it in my bag and uh put on my uh, merino wool's kind of my go-to for most of my layers i think it is to it's like it's become such a thing and it's like anybody who has, hasn't yeah. used it like you just have to try it um and it doesn't yeah. even matter warm cold whatever like I mean, merino wool socks in the summer, fantastic um, underwear. Yeah. Like I have uh, some of the icebreaker, like boxer brief, longer ones type thing, like nine inch or whatever they are, down almost to the knees. Super yeah. comfy, you know, super. Yeah, yeah, I've got the the Patagonia, you know, same version. Yeah, um, or same idea, and uh, yeah, super comfy, and uh, yeah. I, I don't always wear a chamois, but when I do, I've got the, the 45 no, or the 7 mesh. Oh, yeah. Uh, chamois now. It's like yeah. a commercial. I don't always wear a chamois, but when I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, Steve, Steve O'Shaughnessy is the one to talk to you about that one. He got gifted <clears throat> a, uh, a, a 7 mesh shorts on his, uh, his tour divide. Yeah, we were talking. And, uh, we uh, were talking about it, him and I. <laughs> because he always he always yeah. talked about the Saks underwear, right? He was like Saks with the ball bag, they're amazing, blah blah blah. Yeah. And and then he went on the tour divide, and I guess he was having some small issues, and somebody gave him a pair of seven mesh bib shorts, and he was like, "Oh my god, like <laughs> it's a game changer." Yeah. 
Um, I actually yeah, recently no. messaged him because uh, there's a company out of Montreal. I think they're out of Montreal called Beneath. Or no, yeah, Beneath be, with a backwards E. It looks like the Russian E, which, eh, which is a, okay. looks like a three. <clears throat> yeah. And they've created a similar underwear to the Saks ones, but they've made some that are sports specific and there's some that have a, have a chamois in them. So great for like under the mountain bike shorts and stuff. So I sent him some pictures cool. and I was like, not with me wearing them, but just of the underwear. And I was like, Hey dude, it's like the sax ones, but with a chamois. And he's like, are you sending me pictures of your undies? And I was like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Se- Seven mesh has some, uh, some undies with a chamois now too. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. That's yeah. It's- yeah, so it's super comfy. Um, yeah, so for me, like personally, growing up, I, I think we had a bad babysitter that would leave us outside for too long a time in Quebec City. And um, all my life now, it's like hands and feet. I'm super prone to to cold hands and feet. And I think it's one of those things that's as you've, from what I understand of reading, is like as you've gotten frostbite and damaged nerves and cells, it's, it's just easier and easier to happen kind of for the rest of your life, right? Yeah, I mean that and... And uh, cycling, if you've ever had hand-related, hand you know. Like uh, numbness? Cycling-related numbness, um, you know, that's a cutoff of, of the nerve endings and the, the circulation to your hands. And so that can make you more prone to mm. uh, having cold hands. Yeah, I've never really had and, an issue too much with uh, numbness, luckily. And then uh, genetics plays a part. Um you know, some people have, you know, few big blood vessels go into their hands, and and then of course, you know, there's there's always the the sort of um, random elements, if you will. You know, some people just get cold hands. Yeah. And- well, the luckily the good thing is is like, I mean, pogies are such a a clutch thing, you know, for fat biking yeah. or just winter riding in general. It's just. Um, you know, I, I had ridden many, many times down to about minus three, minus five, you know, I'm cool without pogies, um, just wear a little bit thicker gloves and stuff. But then all of a sudden I was out there on the fat bike and, you know, you go for two, three hours, it's a different story. And I was wearing mitts and obviously mitts kind of suck because you're either holding the handlebars or you're holding the brake levers and not yeah. ideal because it's just kind of dangerous, especially on single track. Um, oh yeah, totally. And, and that's I, uh, when I decided. I, I of course, I, started out. Go ahead. You know, back in back in uh, the late nineties, when I was starting out, I had you know these big military expedition. The white ones with the fluff thing on them. Yeah, the snot rag. Exactly yeah. those. Yeah, and and they're awesome at keeping your hands warm, but. Um, Man, man, do they, you know, they're either in between your brakes mm-hmm. and your and your bars and there's no stopping or or your hands are over the brakes yep. and there's always stopping. <laughs> exactly. Actually, I, I think when it comes to like warm weather gloves, I, I've I've worn gloves. I have a really great pair of like some mad cow or something, something I bought in Asia and I forget the brand, but really good their gloves inside with a with a shell mitt but nothing beats the old army mitts like i yeah. i remember going out on exercises and carrying a machine gun which is you know steel everywhere you'd be out for the entire day holding this piece of metal in your hands never ever got cold hands like 
just didn't happen. You know, they're so, yeah. so good. A buddy of mine just gave me his, he found his old army kit. Some of the stuff still kicking around recently. He's like, here, you can have some of my stuff. And I looked through and it was two left gloves, two left mitts. And I was like, damn it, Justin, like, <laughs> you, you got to get me, get me a right one. Find it, find it. Look through your stuff. <laughs> But you'd come back from exercises and there'd be people's kit everywhere on the, the 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 parade square. And, you know, probably last time he went on an exercise, it got mixed with somebody else's and he ended up with two left mitts. Yeah, and somebody else has two right mitts. So I was pretty excited for for a few minutes. Um, Yeah, my mine are all full of holes now. Oh, yeah. And uh, Do you yeah. need a left mitt by any chance? <laughs> I could send you one. I do not. <laughs> um, I do not because I have I have pogies now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tell me about your your you know the clothes like when you're wearing clothes, it's really hard to uh, like ther- I guess the words thermal regulate. Um, you know, either you're you're freezing or you're sweating. That's what I feel like. It's like it's really hard to find that comfortable balance. Um, so I'm, I feel like I'm every twenty minutes I'm zipping the jacket up or down. Um, yeah. What are some strategies, some ways that we can, you know, manage our temperature better? I mean, you've done this a long time and this is my first year. So what can I look into so and try? I I would say uh, when you're when you're talking about every 20 minutes uh, zipping your jacket up and down, uh, you, you should move that frequency up quite a bit. Like, oh, maybe it's more often. Oh, maybe it is even more. <laughs> Just yeah, every every two minutes, just just do sort of a, um, a kind of a thought process. Am I sweating? Um, and because you'll you'll notice when you're cold, but you won't notice when you're starting to sweat. Right. Be, because when you're a little bit too warm, it's it's just not that unpleasant. And so you know, kind of every thirty seconds a minute to just kind of, am I starting to sweat? And that's when you make the adjustment. Okay. So that way you're doing, you know, less, less big swings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so instead of, you know, stripping off a, an outer jacket or unzipping completely, you're pulling the zipper down six inches mm-hmm. or lifting your toque up so that your, your forehead's exposed or um you know just subtle things rather than um rather than doing the big adjustment every 20 minutes and that helps a lot because you know once you once you develop a lot of sweat then you have to keep that sweat warm or it's going to evaporate and cool you off Mm -hmm. drastically so that you get into that big swing cycle yeah. Yeah. That makes me think actually it's, it's not so different. Like the cooling factor, like you're mentioning, cause I remember riding in some really hot countries or even Canada in this hottest part of the summer. And the only thing keeping you cool is the fact that you're sweating and the wind is blowing it and it's causing it to like almost be like a little bit of an air conditioning. So if you stop all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm really hot. But as long as yeah. you had that evaporation going on, it was, it's pretty good. Right. So I think in the winter it's, it's it's the same thing, but it's exact opposite what you want to happen. You don't want to you don't want to have that evaporation going on, right? <clears throat> you you don't want to you don't want to get into that evaporative zone. You want to, um, yeah, just catch that sweating as it's starting, 
Um, I I know Mike Kiriak, uh he goes a step further and he says, don't sweat. Hard, <laughs> fast rule. Don't sweat. Don't, don't sweat. Do not sweat. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he definitely, um, you know, it takes that, you know, the same thing as I do basically where, you know, he's, he's evaluating every minute or so, you know, am I sweating? Am I starting to sweat? And, you know, trying to catch it before it gets a chance to evaporate and cool you down. And, and I guess like for me and the way I've been doing things, you know, I have sometimes I have a, a light down jacket that I would wear under my jacket. It's a terrible idea because down just absorbs sweat like no tomorrow, right? It's if if yeah. you're following Mike's rule, don't sweat. You're probably okay with down, but if you're probably like most other normal people, you're gonna you're gonna sweat at some point, and down might not be the greatest idea, right? Before continuing on with the show, I'd like to thank Panorama Cycles for sponsoring this podcast. Panorama Cycles is a bicycle manufacturer in Quebec, Canada, dedicated to backcountry cyclists that prefer gravel, snow, and off-road trails. They believe cycling is a catalyst for adventures of all sizes, and that there's no need to travel across the world or to be a seasoned athlete to live epic outdoor adventures. Over the past year, I've been riding the Chick Shocks Fat Bike, the Catadan Gravel Bike, and the Taiga Mountain Bike. From everyday rides, bikepacking trips, and a multitude of races and events, these bikes have put a huge smile on my face every step of the way while also getting me on the podium on the Wendigo Ultra Fat Bike Race and helped me set an FKT on the Canadian Shield 400. In partnering up with the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, Panorama Cycles also wants to give back to the cycling community, particularly you, the listeners of the podcast. By using the promo code BPA10 when purchasing a new bike from PanoramaCycles.com, you'll save 10%. For more information on their environmental commitments or to check out their bikes, head to PanoramaCycles.com. Now back to the show. Yeah, I've got um, I've got a down jacket, and I I bring it on almost every trip. Um, but it's uh, um, it's super warm, and as soon as I stop, I put the down jacket on. Ah, uh, okay. And that's to um, just prevent me from getting chilled because I'm no longer produ- as soon as I stop, I'm no longer producing heat, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter what I stop for. Um, yeah, I throw that jacket on. If I'm going to be stopped for more than about 30 seconds. And it's a layer yeah. over everything, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just throw on a, um, you know, and it's, it's super compressible. It's um, Fitzroy, Fitzroy by Patagonia. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, I have uh, a, I have an outdoor research jacket that I've been wearing for a bunch of years now. Um, it's a it's a puffy, but it's Pertex, so it's not down, and and that mm-hmm. seems to be pretty good. Like I've done some pretty serious exercise in it, and it never gets really cold. I guess because it doesn't really absorb the water the same way down would, right? Yeah, yeah. I have my my sort of jacket that I would ride with is um, it's a merino wool, but it's like oh, nice. um, it's like batting. It's it's. Uh, it's light and and um you know like not unlike a a polyester batting insulation but it's wool Mm -hmm. and um so it's super warm um resists you know it doesn't get all waterlogged and uh so that's kind of my my light puffy layer 
you know, if it's if it's minus twenty, you need something. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's kind of my light puffy layer rather than my heavy layer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm planning to. Uh, I'm plan. You've heard of the Wendigo Ultra, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. I, I seriously, I, I'm still sort of halfway thinking about seriously considering entering that this year. Or? Um, yeah. Oh, if you decide to if you decide to make it down, uh, I'll extend my house to you as well. We'll we'll find place for you. I have another buddy and maybe Richard who was on the podcast re- as well recently. He might be in okay. in the area. So uh, yeah. definitely we we can make place. Uh, my wife will be thrilled to have more houses houses people in the body, house, but uh, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> it'll be a great weekend. Um, yeah. So I'm thinking yeah. of either the 100k or 200k. You know, it's 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 intimidating because. Well, the beautiful part is it's rail trails, so it's never too, you know, it's not loose. It's not going to be powder snow. It's it'll be packed at least by snowmobiles, and um, but yeah. you know, when knowing that you're going ten kilometers an hour, so you have at least ten hours at the best possible, you know, um, probably ten hours to twenty hours or twenty four, twenty six hours if you're doing two hundred k. Who knows with the stops? Yeah, um, it's intimidating. You know, it's I I feel. I don't feel intimidated like this on my bike in the summer going for 50 hours, but I feel like really intimidated contemplating doing this in the winter. Um, you know, and, and just the gear stuff as well. Obviously there's so much to consider, but like, what are, what are some things, what, what kind of recommendations would you be able to, to give me to, to make this experience as manageable as possible? I mean, I, I definitely have the power to ride it. It's uh, it's all the other yeah. aspects. <clears throat> yeah your your riding is probably uh it is is it's never the weak point when it's uh when it comes to winter but um um and it it looks pretty civilized too where it is yeah you know you you could pretty much you know find a building to get into within like you know 10 10 15k yeah, I presume actually. Yeah, you probably definitely could. Yeah, I've looked through their stuff uh, pretty pretty accurately or pretty closely. Yeah, like it. It looked to me like the the emergencies wouldn't be as like as as life or death emergency as as somewhere where the nearest human habitation is like fifty k away. Right. Um. So. Um. You know, there's that that comfort level, but I, you know, I'd I'd still want to be able to sleep outside, mm-hmm. and that kind of means a a sleeping bag. Um, and if it's likely to snow, um, be, a tarp, yeah, or or something to keep the keep the snow off your face because it's hard to sleep with snow on your face. That's a good point. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really like um, pe- people. Uh, I I don't carry a bivy uh, anymore in the winter. No, no. My experience is that even the best, most breathable of bivies, um, as soon as it's winter, the the frost just forms on the inside of them, and your sleeping bag's wet. Oh, okay. So if I go on like a four or five day trip, um, then, you know, by the third night, my sleeping bag, I, I weighed it 
after a bunch of uh, a bunch of trips, I would you know weigh my sleeping bag after one night, weigh my sleeping bag after two nights, and in the bivy, it's like a pound the first night of water. Wow, that's a lot. Oh my god, that's yeah. a lot of sweat. <laughs> that's that's yeah, like it's 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 amazing like you you don't think it's it's there's any way that it's going to be like that but yeah it totally is um, and then by second third fourth night you're, you're really getting up there then it's like second second third and fourth night like the the curve goes down and you you um you store less water per night partly because your sleeping bag is cooler so you don't sweat as much at uh, night, okay. and probably you're getting dehydrated and whatever mm-hmm. but yeah so i I um, have been carrying just a a tarp, and uh, I'll uh, lay the tarp over, or I'll, I'll set the tarp up. I can set it up either with my bike or trees or right. whatever. It's a, like a shaped, like an A-frame tarp. So if I pitch it low on the one side, it'll block the wind. Yeah. And and then just your air mattress yeah. under you, right? Or do you use a ground sheet too? Or and I I've been uh, I've been doubling up. Um, maybe it's because I'm getting old or maybe it's just I'm getting smarter but I've been carrying a closed cell foam like a Z rest or a, a ridge rest like the the eggshell I got one here oh yeah yeah I have one I have one in my garage yeah, yeah you yeah, totally like the, have one yeah. and, and uh, yeah so I, I for a long time I was buying them at garage sales anytime I'd see them and uh, because they're the most insulation uh, for their weight, mm-hmm. and it it can't be compromised. Like you never lie on it and have your shoulder pushing through the insulation mm-hmm. into the ground. And so I put that under my inflatable, and then if I'm going super light, I'll just carry the foam. Oh, okay. And and then you know, most times I want to be more comfortable than that. So I'll bring the inflatable and I'll put it on top of the foam. Okay, cool. Good to know. And That's then, interesting. Yeah. And then, and then there's, you know, all kinds of in-betweens where I have a couple of, like, <clears throat> they're just like 18 inch squares of the, the blue camping foam. Mm-hmm. And I'll put one under my shoulder, one under my hip, and then I'll have, um, uh, insulation under the parts that get compromised where I'm lying on my air mattress. That's interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I toss and turn so much when I sleep, probably less when I bike pack because I'm mm-hmm. actually tired. <laughs> and uh, I always yeah. worry that if I don't have a, a bivy bag, I'll just wake up and I'll be laying in a ditch or something or I've <laughs> rolled into a, a snowbank if it was winter. Yeah, I kind of, <laughs> I kind of pack myself into a, uh, you know, into a ditch in the snow and sometimes I'll, you know, curve the bottom of my uh, bed just to sort of help me not to roll out. Right. And uh, that's, that's um, my, my daughter does that. She, she rolls like crazy. We always have to, you know, put like a bike or something or a pack or what doesn't matter what, like something to stop her from, yeah to stop her from rolling out of the out of the tarp yeah it's interesting it's um it's a lot of things i emailed uh, or i messaged on instagram the uh what's his name the the 
um, director of the Wendigo. And I said, Hey man, oh, yeah. I have a, I have an army sleeping bag. Cause, uh, I just, I just have one. Uh, but I only have the, I have the inner, but they're so warm, right? Like the inner and outer together of those, I think you're good to like minus 40, like really, really yeah. thick. They're, they're quite heavy, but I said, you know, is if I have one of those and I double it up with my, my down bag, is that okay? Like, and he says, no, you have to have labels on it that say temperature ratings. I'm like, but it's the Canadian military one. Like every, you know, anybody would assume <laughs> yeah. that that's pretty, it's pretty good. You know, like we, yeah. we do go in the Arctic conditions and sleep in lean twos, uh, <laughs> with sleeping bags. Yeah. But I, I got, I got caught out on the same thing, um, where my sleep system is a, uh, I have a quilt that I made myself. Like I, I sew stuff. Yeah. So, um, I, I made myself a, a quilt. It's like, um, you know, not just a flat quilt it's a shaped quilt. It ties right. down to my, my mattress and then has a, a foot box for my mummy bag. And so it's good to minus 10 and I've tested it down to minus 10. And With then just a quilt. Yeah. Minus 10. Just that's just amazing. Quilt. Yeah. Like it's, it's that's you know that's with a i've got a hat um it's somewhere around anyways i've got it's it's like a hood hat that i wear that you know keeps my head warm like, like the down the, hat the, the down the down hood thing yeah yeah i have same, a, I bought same one of those. idea yeah, yeah. but it's it's a synthetic one okay and uh and then i wear that so then as i roll um my my uh the quilt stays on top of me and that you know the hat can can turn Mm -hmm. so unlike the mummy bag where sometimes if you turn you you kind of end up with your face in the hood yeah exactly and uh so then you know if it's really cold if it's if it's colder than minus 10 um i i pair that up with my uh minus 10 down sleeping bag and you know, it's got a, so I pull the hood up on it over the, over the hood from my uh, quilt and, uh, and put the quilt over the sleeping bag. And because the quilt is in uh, synthetic insulation, it is less susceptible to um, catching all the frost. Right. So that's the other thing is, is your, if you have down your outermost layer um, has um, there's I forget they call it the condensation point and then the frost point so the sweat is vapor to a point then it gets cold enough that it condenses into water okay yep and, and then it gets colder still and it condenses into frost well it's not it's not going anywhere and so um, the the um, the synthetic insulation being on the outside not catching as much of that frost really helps. So anyways, you, yeah. <clears throat> it all started, you said I got caught in the same thing. So I guess you were signed up for an event and because you had this quilt, they're like, that's not good so enough. I was, I was looking at the Wendigo and I messaged. Oh, same thing. <laughs> because, <laughs> because I've got a sleeping system that's like totally unmarked, like, you know, uh, a 20 year old minus 10 sleeping bag <clears throat> and a homemade, uh, quilt that obviously has no markings on it well you do manufacture things so i think what you should do is you take like a 
you know, the kind of plasticky material that they print labels on and stuff on sleeping bags. And you just go to a print shop and have them print on, you know, cold yeah. bike, minus 10, <laughs> and then sew it onto your bag and be like, oh, this is manufactured. Like it's manufactured by a person yeah. who has a business. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I hope Wendy goes not listening. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the the other thing that they would then catch me on is, um, and and other people have have uh, validated my my theory, and and that is in order to get a good idea of what a, a sleeping bag is uh, or a combination of sleeping uh, stuff is good for, um, I go with so my minus ten sleeping bag is. 30 degrees away from room temperature, 20 degrees. Okay. Yeah. So it warms me up 30 degrees approximately. Mm -hmm. Um, and if I pair that then with another minus 10 set of sleepwear, you should be good to minus 40. Exactly. And, um, I used to, you know, talk about this in theory and, um, it, it wasn't until 2019 that I had time to put it, to the test where I actually slept out in minus 40 and was comfortable with that. Yeah. I, I, was, I was actually going to ask you is minus 10 and minus 10, is that equal minus 20? But no, I, I, I think you're, you're right. It's got to be from what the base temperature of the bags are designed around is probably room temperature. So from around 20 yeah. degrees, 21 degrees or whatever, go from there. Yeah. So I, I've since seen some, some charts from various, uh, like um, sleeping bag and, and uh, quilt manufacturers that use the exact same system. And I don't know if they got it from testing. I don't know if they got it from me beaking off on the internet, but it it's found its way into sleeping bag culture. That's good. That's actually a really good thing. What's uh, what are your thoughts on like, I mean, you said you have a quilt, um, you know, like, Quilts versus sleeping bags. Um, and I know a lot of the quilts now, they can be, they can be kind of zipped up or they can be attached to your, to your mattress with a, whether it's stick or, or, or bungees type thing to, to keep it on you. Um, any comments on those things? Well, um, at, at some point, you know, like, you know, most winters, in, in fact, I'm, I'm going out this weekend um, the forecast is for minus 20 something. So I'm going to bring both. I'm going to bring a sleeping bag, a down sleeping bag and, and the synthetic quilt. And then when I want to go super light, um, you know, if it's shoulder season and the coldest it could possibly be is say minus 12, then I might push it and just bring the quilt. Okay. But if if the coldest it could possibly be is, you know, is lots colder than that, then, you know, I, I need some backup. I, mm -hmm. I like to have a, a safety margin because, uh, you know, a helicopter for evacuation from even 20K into the backcountry might be two days. Right. Yeah. Especially depending if you're, if you need evacuation, usually it's when bad weather kicks in too. So yeah, big, big snowstorm or you know an injury or you know it doesn't doesn't really matter what but you know they're they're not you know it's not an uber mm -hmm. 
And and on that note, then, so when you're going in the backcountry like that, you always have how many days of extra food and I mean, water is not so you can you know or gas to boil water to make water. Um, yeah. How much? Yeah. Do you plan for as a backup safety net? <clears throat> so my my safety net is one day of extra food, and you know if I know it's going to be two days, I could stretch that one day of food. You know, like if I'm injured, I can stretch one day's worth of food for two or three days uh-huh. um, because I'm I'm not as active. And um, you know, if it's um, uh, you know fuel, I generally have two or three days of of uh, fuel to boil water. Um, you know, barring a serious injury you can almost always find like open water creeks and stuff, especially in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause the water's running um, a little bit quicker too. Huh? The water running runs. And uh, even when, you know, enough snow piles up, there's enough pressure that the, the bottom most layer um, usually stays, stays liquid. And, and so creeks will flow most of the year round. And so it, you know, it's it's rare that you can't find water within you know five kilometers or so. Right. Yeah. Barring serious injury. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Like if you can't walk five kilometers, then you got a hole. But if hole, it's if it's a uh, different uh, if it's winter, you know, just can also eat snow and melt it that way. Not that it's the ideal way, but you can yeah. definitely avoid the yellow snow. But yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> and. uh now, what about, um? I, so, you know, one thing I was reading, I think and it was on your site, in your blog that you shared, and it was talking about how critical your leg temperature is to, you know, a lot of people, and, and I'm probably guilty of this, I've, a couple of times I've been out there, you know, with underwear under some snow pants, and it's cool, but it's not cold, but at the same time, and then I, I read your blog, and I learned that, you know, because your, your blood is, and, and I know it's jumping back to the feet, but because your blood is tra- transitioning from your feet back to your heart, it's cooling too much in your legs, right? Which slows your heart rate, which then slows your blood flow, which leads to colder feet, right? So what do you do for layers on your, you know, your not your feet or hands, but the things like the legs and um, and how critical is arms to that too, I guess? <clears throat> yeah, so um, arms, you, you probably saw in, in pictures of me with pogies or pictures of my kids with uh, pogies where, where my pogies go right up to your elbows. Yeah, they're big um, or long, and that's that's by de- that's by design that they're intended to keep the blood warm in your forearms while it's getting to your hands, um, and it's also an easy way without having a without having a cuff on them to um, you know prevent any any uh, eddy currents of of wind from getting in as mm-hmm. well. Um, but the the primary reason is to keep your forearms warm so that the blood, when it gets to your hands, is still warm. Okay. And, yeah, then on my legs, I have um, usually a pair of Merino long johns, and then I made a set of um, WinPro stretch fleece tights. Oh, okay. And then... The fronts of the knees are in uh, 
they're just like a a cordura with a a flat out um uh a piece of uh, like heavyweight fleece behind the cordura. Oh, okay. And and that way I can, you know, because number one, I I wore through the original knees, <laughs> <laughs> so I I cut them out and and put the uh, put the cordura panels in, and then I put a a double layer of uh, fleece behind the cordura so that you know because every once in a while you'll have to kneel on snow to work your stove or whatever. Yep. And uh, it's it's nice to be able to kneel without getting that foam camping mat to kneel on. Ah, good point. And then um, the uh, the hips also have a, a panel, an extra thick panel of uh, of the fleece behind the windpro to uh, to keep my um, my butt warm. Nice. And and another thing that's been driving me nuts that you might help me out with is. Um... The, well, I mean, you saw that. I know you commented the other day on the helmet I was wearing. Uh, I think it was you. Um, I have a con- the Blivet helmet with the, the mm-hmm. with the lenses, and but even those, I mean, you know, those goggles, glasses, everything fogs up very easily in the winter. Um, what are some ways to minimize this? And have you have you come across? I know I saw I saw there's a product out there by a company called North Forty Five, which confused me at first from Montreal yeah. and they make some magnetic ones and stuff and their design is meant to leave your mouth area open so the air breathes away but like what do you do to keep it fogging up uh, a minimal thing and so um <clears throat> you know fogging is is probably the the Achilles heel of of winter cycling um but definitely anything that can direct your breath away from your goggles um, so, um, I don't know if you saw my article on heat exchanger masks. No, I didn't. No. Oh, you should read that. All right. I'll have to Google it um, or search it up in your thing. If, if you, uh, if you Google heat exchanger mask, it, it's probably the first hit. Okay. It's, it's been my most popular article uh, ever. Okay. I'll have to read um, it. Anyways, some of these some of these masks. I mean, there's other types of masks as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the ITI, I had a um, uh, a neoprene mask, uh, and uh, it, and it just kind of leaves has, your nose holes open underneath. Yeah, it kind of leaves your nostrils yeah. open at the bottom, and so it kind of directs the the steam away from your. Actually, I think I have one of those kicking around from my Korea days. Still, yeah, I should look for it. Yeah. Um, so, so those work. And then, um, I made Tanya one, uh, cause she wears glasses. And so she, she really doesn't have the option of, of fogging up. Mm. And so I made her a, a nose band and it's just a, it's kind of like a, a narrow, um, almost like a buff but it's uh it's windproof um and so it keeps her her nose from and and cheeks from getting frostbite oh nice okay and and then it's open at the bottom and then below that she'll wear a um you know just like a a neck warmer Mm -hmm. up to her her chin so she's got this you know top layer to direct the the steam downward and uh 
than a uh, um, you know more conventional neck warmer at the bottom. Oh, interesting. It sounds kind of like a. I mean, it sounds like what you designed is kind of like also what I see on from that North Forty Five. It's they, they, well, they have a balaclava one now, so it's a balaclava, but I think it only comes up to your chin, so it's like the the open hole around your eyes yeah. and chin. And then there's a, a neck warmer thing, but it hangs off your nose. So because it's hanging down, your air will escape yeah. downwards. And yeah, and they made it so that the the um, the nose cover area has a magnet that you can glue a little magnet or with like this ad- adhesive putty that hardens to your ski mm. goggles or yeah. you can get the one that has just a little wire that can bend to your snow shape so i've been looking at that right. considering it because i'm uh, i'm not sure if you heard on the podcast but i'm i'm hoping and planning to to do the route blanche um in northern quebec this march break and i figure i, I kind of need to start thinking about all these little things for multi-day yeah yeah, multi-day and um, high humidity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because right uh, off the St. Lawrence, high, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and and potentially very cold. And potentially very wet because it could also be melting and like just yeah. I could be riding through it, several it inches. Be, it could be melting, <clears throat> could, could be raining, could be freezing rain. It's going to yeah, be fun. There's there's a lot of things that can uh, – that can make things uh, spicy, um, weather-wise. Yeah, so it's a lot to think about because I'm, I'm really like, you know, that it becomes all the things that are a little bit outside my element at the moment or, or my own comfort zones. But I'm determined to, yeah, to, to do it if my wife will let me go. So she's she's mostly on board. My mother-in-law is here watching the baby, and I have a fat bike. So perfect. What better year will there ever be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty hard to say no to uh, an opportunity like that. Yeah, well, I didn't That's, think it was uh, I didn't think it was a possibility I, because I, I I in my mind I was like, oh, mid March, everything you know, it's not possible. I'll never be able to go do this. And then I think I was talking to Rich or Richard, and he was like, yeah, it's you know, they, it only opens mid February and it's till about April. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No it. I, it looked great. I after hearing that podcast, I looked it up and I, I was like, "Oh wow, that's that's awesome. That's uh, yeah, right up my alley." Yeah, and uh, yeah. So let's talk about and a couple. No big, oh, sorry, go ahead. And no big mountains. And no big mountains. <laughs> let's talk about a couple little different things. I know uh, I wanted to talk about um, wintering with kids because you did lots of it. So I think you have oodles of uh, experience to share there. And um, and also about your website, your blog, and um, what you manufacture and stuff. So maybe starting with the wintering with kids, what are what are some things we need to keep in mind to make their experience good while also safe, and you know, make us not hate the experience either? Yeah. So I I think the the first thing I ever put on my blog was uh, a trip I did with Tig, and it was the first winter family fat bike packing expedition uh we did a two-nighter when tag was nine and we uh we rode out we rode a portion of the elbow loop and then a portion of a a trail that was that turned out to be completely impassable and uh we sort of got stuck in a in a gully 
uh, filled with snow. And uh, it, it was a real adventure. Um, but I, I think that illustrates um, part of the answer to your question, which is um, you have to be prepared for their safety. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and the fact that they can just run out of energy in two seconds, you know, we sort of got ourselves into, uh, I won't say trouble, but we got ourselves into um, some discomfort. And, you know, once it became clear that we weren't going to be able to finish our intended route, um, you know, we kind of just, you know, shut it down for the, found a flat spot, uh, set up our, uh, our tarp. Actually, at that time, we were using the uh, tent fly uh, without the tent and just a footprint on the bottom. Oh, okay. Yeah. To, to uh, give it its shape, to save the weight of the, the tent because mm-hmm. uh, there's no bugs in the winter. And um, to, um, you know, make it easy to, to uh, still set up something of a, of a shelter mm. and have <clears throat> full, full wind protection and all that. Anyway, so we just set up the shelter and we, you know, cooked up some food. And so we, uh, yeah, we, we ended up having, you know, a great time and it was a really solid adventure. Um, but, uh, you know, no real danger because I had, you know, I had planned that this, this could happen. We could end up having to stop somewhere random and just, you know, camp. Yeah. And, and, um, Sorry, I missed the name of your child. Oh, so it's it's Tig, like tiger without the er. Okay, good. So Tig was nine. How far did you guys go? And like, what was the the, the weather situation, temperature wise, and whatnot? Uh, temperature wise, it it wasn't bad. It was kind of like uh, highs right around zero, okay. lows around minus ten. Um higher up it was maybe minus 15 on our second night um our our third day was a snowstorm serious (laughs) enough that when i finished brushing off my minivan i had to start brushing at the other end oh wow okay (laughs) (laughs) you could just do like all the ontario people and just wipe the windows off and drive you know yeah yeah (laughs) That's uh, sorry, not all of them, yeah. just ninety percent. Sorry, I didn't want to generalize yeah, I, everybody. I've definitely, I've definitely met those people, and uh, yeah. So um, it was uh, the the first night was maybe uh, minus ten ish, and uh, we we stayed at a an actual campground, so we had a campfire and we had, oh, nice. yeah, it was it was a really good time. Um, but the the other aspect of that was, you know, people were like, oh, he's not carrying his fair share because he had one of those foam mattresses strapped to his bars. And that was his total load because he weighed 60 pounds and he had a 35 pound fat bike. Yeah, it's like more than half his weight. So how much are you going to put on? Yeah. The kid, right? <laughs> so so until my my bike weighed about 100 pounds, um, you know, we, I, I was carrying more, less than my share. 
Um, and so, um, yeah, that's that's a big a big thing to to keep in mind. If you if you want your kids to be happy, you, you, you can't you know just burden them down with what you think is their share of the equipment because yeah. it's not. And it's not the same as riding and, on and roads, day, touring on roads with a little pannier with a few things in it. It's it's very different. No. No, it's, it's very different. And, you know, like you've got, you know, sleeping bags. We were prepared to sleep out at minus 40. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so a pair of sleeping bags for him, a pair of sleeping bags for me, um, a, uh, you know, the shelter stove. Um, and was it just the two of you? It was just the two of okay. us. And then... Um, we've we've gone on multi-day trips with the uh with the whole family as well we did um a couple of years in a row we did new years in uh, banff national park there's uh there's a trail that goes out like right from under the the chateau there the uh, banff springs mm-hmm. and um one of the years they were launching the fireworks from just above us on the hill oh, and okay. we were in this backcountry campground like 6k into the backcountry we there was no one else in the campground that's awesome and, and yeah it was it was really it was really a neat thing so we, yeah we we've done that a, a couple of times done new year's trips that's cool and and so the whole family will uh will go in and and uh so yeah i end up carrying even more for that when when you're out there with Tig on that little trip were you doing like you know you're saying you know every two minutes kind of give yourself the run over see how you're doing were you just kind of constantly doing the checks with him how are you doing are you are you too hot are yeah. you too cold those kind of things yeah and you have to keep it um you know because kids have limited amounts of patience so they they don't want to hear you asking the same you know how yeah. you doing question, and and you have to be specific. Um, where you know the kids will say, oh yeah, I'm doing fine, you know, and again they they don't realize you know whether they're sweating or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I I sort of you know went with well how am I dressed, and then you know asked them the questions and and. Uh, think that was when we kind of got the inkling he has uh reno syndrome which is a a circulatory it's it's actually an autoimmune disorder it's like an allergy okay um and your your body shuts off the circulation to your hands so it it can be a perfectly warm day and his hands will be frozen oh wow okay you know um so that's you know kind of got an inkling of that so yeah you know, check him with them. And does he feel that they're super cold? Is he like, my hands are cold or to him, he doesn't really notice. He's like my hand. Yeah. He, he definitely notices that his hands are cold. Um, but if you don't specifically ask, how's your hands, then he, he, uh, he doesn't realize it. Mm, And, uh, there's, there's ways to, you know, there's ways to mitigate the, uh, the, the cold, but he ends up with, um, uh, yeah, he, I, I designed a special set of extra super insulated pogies. Yeah, I saw him. them on your site. Um, 
after that trip because uh, because of the Rainos. And uh, so on that then, trip, he was using pogies, but like even they weren't good enough, right? Like they weren't quite. Yeah, he was using pogies, and then he had big down mittens inside the pogies. Mm. And uh, you know, and and on several trips since, um, he's done you know various combinations of you know really warm pogies and the mitts and the you know sometimes we'll resort to the hand warmers. Um, uh, the the other thing is is insulating the bars from his hands, mm-hmm. so the the grips themselves on his bars are are insulated. Oh, okay. So that it, yeah. And do you and then, do you wrap uh, your your like brake levers and stuff to to get the so you're not right on the metal? On on his for sure I do. Yeah. On on mine, um, it. Uh, yeah, one of my bikes is done, and and the other one is not. Okay. One of my fat, one of my fat bikes, I have the the levers um, done, and um, I used to have um, uh, the plastic levers. They were oh, yeah? just off a a cheap department store bike, um, and they were uh, cheesy plastic V brake levers with uh, mechanical disc brakes. And, um, that way the, the cold didn't, you know, the plastic doesn't draw the cold out of your hands like the metal does. I feel like you could probably uh, 3d print some plastic like levers to fit any, any bike, right? Yeah. That, that's, uh, that's something we're looking into actually, um, is, is levers to fit, um, yeah, to fit some of the brakes. Yeah. To fit like Shimano, SRAM, whatever to, to, yeah. Yeah. It'd be neat. Yeah. Yeah, probably the my my current favorite of the hydraulic brakes are the are the SRAM ones in the winter. Mm, okay. um, some of my older Shimano ones worked really well, but some of my newer ones uh they don't you know, below about minus twenty five or thirty, they don't release very well. Oh so okay. They don't really drag, but then on your second pull there's no free throw. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you have that, that sudden brake syndrome. Yeah. Um, when you, when you pull them the second time. And, uh, so if I'm commuting to work or something that, that can be a bigger deal than fat, fat bike, you know, packing, you, you almost don't need brakes. No, <laughs> you just, usually... worst case scenario, just turn <laughs> off trail and go into the, into the deep yeah. snow. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And uh yeah, so I, I've been seriously considering doing a, a one brake setup on uh on one of my fat bikes to uh to um you know just save weight and, and save complexity. Mm-hmm. It'd be neat to see if uh we're going way have way tactical and off track, but like if you had a one brake <laughs> setup, it'd be interesting, like you know, like problem solvers for changing your brake pull and whatnot, if it wasn't hydraulic. It'd be interesting to see how to how to have like an adapter so your front brake's getting a little bit more braking power than the back brake. I'm not sure if that's uh, something that could ever be done on a one brake system. Um unless it has to do with bleeding. Yeah. Maybe just bleeding. You could have yeah. them going to a splitter, but I don't know. It's beyond me. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There are there are um, 
there are those weird um like those cyclocross um auxiliary levers and stuff mm-hmm. <clears throat> maybe a system like yeah anyways so tell us about uh, the yeah. blog um it's been going on for yeah, quite a so while so the the blog yeah i started it in uh probably 2013 so a decade now um and pretty much it was just to you know get the word out there I, what i was hoping for was to recruit some friends to come with me and bring their kids all right everyone a quick little uh interjection into this conversation i thought i should tell you that I really messed up for the first time in years of recording podcasts. Um, I've had audio issues and stuff before, but because of this post-COVID cough thing, uh, I quite often during our interview was pushing the mute button so I could cough. And at one point, I guess I forgot to unmute. And maybe he was saying something that was so engaging that I forgot to unmute. And I went for like 30 minutes with myself muted. Luckily... Uh, I do use Zencaster as my recording platform and it always saves a copy of the recording on Zencaster. So I was able to download my audio file and kind of match it up for about 30 minutes. The audio will be slightly different because it's my voice, not through my recorder, but through the Zencaster app. So anyways, at least uh, I have the audio. So that's the, that's the key thing. And um, yeah, apologize for that. Did it work? Um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no I, I have had a, I have had a few trips now. Um, my my uh, my friend Adam uh, and his daughter came out uh, last year on a winter trip. Um, I had a I had a fall trip one year where we had uh, I think twelve families and twenty some kids. How oh, neat. In- including this will interest you nine month old twins nice that's awesome yeah. um and uh so yeah but um and was part of the part of making the blog was it just that you noticed there was a lack of other resources out there was it just yeah there you know, was, when you were searching you couldn't find anything there was nobody <clears throat> you know there was plenty of people talking about um talking about riding you know in the cold um you know people would have their 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 stories of you know sort of trip report stuff and um i sort of wanted to you know kind of you know one-up everybody else like hey i went with my kid (laughs) no um i i i really and i and i still think and i and i still hear from people who are interested in in going out in in winter with their kids um not necessarily bike packing but you know uh, ski camping or mm-hmm. um, and we we do a lot of that stuff as well as a family where we'll just winter hike somewhere and camp in the winter and uh, so there's a few of those kind of you know trip reports and and I talk a lot about um, you know how to you know how to keep your kids safe in the winter how to keep your kids happy in the winter. Um, you know, kind of neat things we've done out in the winter, you know, cause, cause we get a decent amount of it and, you know, um, doesn't take much snow to, to, uh, sort of 
hide the uh, the ugliness of uh, yeah. you know sort of roads and anything. Um, and I think a lot of people don't really know. You know, you you got to remember that here in Canada, it's you know four, sometimes five months of winter a year. That's a huge chunk of the year. Yeah, lost if you don't make the most of it. Yeah, and if you if you go out into the mountains, you know, you can take that you know a couple months further, where where um, you know the the elbow loop. Um, that I that I love to ride on. Um, I've been out there July long weekend, and it's been snowbound like, oh, wow, um, knee deep post holing into you know snow. Um, yeah, in in well, July like the tour divide <laughs> tour divide last year. Well, I mean it wasn't it wasn't Canada yeah. Day weekend or July long weekend, but it's still pretty late in the season, and you know. Yeah, huge, and it's 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 not uh, that was that was unusually much snow down low, but it it's definitely not unusual to see big big amounts of mm-hmm. snow in the passes and and higher up, you know, right, you know, I I don't think there's a month of the year that we haven't been we haven't seen three four inches of snow on us, you know, if we've been camping higher up. Yeah, I recommend people check out your blog. There's a I haven't read too many of the articles, but I've read a few and and they're great. Like there's lots of knowledge to be shared there, so I think it's it's definitely some. When did you get into making your own gear? I guess was did this all kind of start years ago when there was nothing out there and Yeah, so um when I was planning to do the ITI, um pogies were um not really available. Um, and um, I, I knew I wanted some. And I also had a, a few kind of ideas in my head of, of uh, you know, what I should do to, to make them serve more purposes. So um, for, first thing that you, you notice when you go out winter bikepacking is that um, if you're eating a lot of bars, those bars get frozen. And, uh, you know, so you can jokingly say that the pogies saved my teeth by giving me a place to, to thaw out my cliff bars before. Do they get that much warmth in there to keep them thawed? I mean, you're just in a pogey they, in general? They get enough. You know, if I put them in there for, you know, three or four hours, they, they get um, thawed enough that they're, you know, I mean, you know they're still cold, but but they're not tooth breaking frozen. And I guess the alternative to having them inside your jacket is you then no longer you don't have to fully unzip to to dig in to get yeah. them away from an inside yeah, pocket and, that's close to skin, right? Yeah, and your and your pogies are right there, like they're where your hands are, so they're easy to grab and mm-hmm. and uh, so yeah, my my first pair of pogies that I made that that was the first I think the first outdoor gear that I made um was was purely to to get those features i also wanted them to be able to come off the bike and then act as camp booties oh neat okay and uh i thought that would help keep my feet warm in the uh in the winter and that's true it does um but it it lets your 
your boots or your boots boot liners freeze. Um, uh, so so nowadays I usually take the boot liners out of my boots and and leave the pogies on the bike. Mm. And uh, yeah, so I I built this enormous set of pogies that that uh, I still use once in a while, and they 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 can work as uh, as as booties. They'll fit a family size bag of Cheetos. They're they're massive. <laughs> <laughs> Huge. Um, yeah, they, and you know they were sort of based around you know carrying snacks, carrying uh, mm-hmm. carrying stuff as well as as uh, you know functioning. And then, and at what point did you at what point did you design drop bar uh, pogies? Like, how what prompted that? Were you riding a drop bar bike, or was it just something people were asking for? I yeah, people were asking. Like, people would would write to me, and so for about. I don't know, five years, I, I was kind of trying to get my head around how, how do I make these? How do I make these so that they work? Um, I knew from my experience with, um, you know, hand injuries and stuff that I wanted to, I wanted them to be able to uh, use all three positions of the drop bars. I wanted to be able to ride on the tops, the hoods and the drops. Um, and everything else on the market basically is the hoods hoods are nothing yeah that's what seems to be and you know that makes them really compact which is great um i'm i'm not uh not dissing other people's stuff um but yeah people kept asking me for them and i was like i i don't know i i don't know how to make them and so then i i finally sat down uh there's a bike shop in town called bike bike and uh he said you gotta make some drop bar ones for me (laughs) and um otherwise you're not allowed back here to fix your bikes (laughs) (laughs) no no he um he he um i i uh i i'm just friends with the owner sean yeah and uh and he was buying my pogies oh nice Um, and so um yeah so he he was like yeah you you got to make the the drop bar ones and i was like okay so i i went through about 30 prototypes oh wow yeah um, i imagine like just so much time spent to like to get that design done right yeah yeah <clears throat> so i i had you know i had a few weird ones with like sleeves that go you know over the bars and and hook up in the middle and and uh I kind of wanted to to be able to work on like any bike, um, and the only drop bar bikes I had at the time, I didn't even know that the the Shimano Brifters now have the the shift cable comes out the back at like behind the hood. Yeah, and and I just assumed they were all I had older road bikes. And both my With the cables road bikes yeah. had the cables. No, not they had the the ones coming out the side at the front of the yeah of right. the hood, and uh, so I I designed them around working for that. And then Sean's like, "Yeah, you don't have to work on those." Well, that's the most popular feature. <laughs> it turns out gives more hand space, I guess. Just well, no, it's it's um it's that like a lot of people have older bikes and they oh, okay. or, 
or they relegate their older road bike to be their winter beater. Right. And, and so they have the older style STI uh, shifters on, on there. And uh, so they want, they want to be able to, to route the cable out there. So that took me a while to figure out. And, uh, and then they got a pair of pogies that are worth more than the bike. <laughs> so you got to be careful not to get the bike stolen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, the first, the first pair ever, uh, were stolen on their first day. Yeah. From from a locked bike room um in in a hospital. Oh. And uh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh that person must have been couldn't wait for you to build more to make more so they had to just go find who you sold them to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um yeah, so I, I started making the the drop bar ones, and they've been yeah they've been pretty successful. Um, yeah. And has the the manufacturing aspect has it always just been um, like has it been just something you do just because you like to make and create, or um, you know what prompted it, and and what other kind of things do you make as well? I'm just kind of wondering. I mean, I know I've checked your website. Yeah, so um, it it originally started with. Um, I was a stay-at-home dad for 17 years um, through both my kids' childhoods. And um, so they, um, you know, I I had a lot of sort of weird time available. And so I started taking in bikes and I, I, you know, do bike repair on the side. I also did before and after school care and um then i was kind of you know looking for something crafty to do and i was like well i've got these pogies that i use myself that i've made for all my kids bikes i'll see if there's any demand for them uh at the time i was making them from uh kids uh winter jackets size 12 kids winter jackets basically uh so the the front zipper to the center of the back uh, about a you know half inch apart, and then cut the jacket in half, cut the sleeve off, cuff it, you're done. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so so that's how they started out. I was I was selling those you know dozens of them um, on the website. I just you know would put up pictures and they would sell, and uh, and then I started making them from scratch because it got to be that I'd, you know, I'd go to Goodwill and I'd, I'd buy all the size 12 jackets and I sort of felt bad because, you know, what if somebody... Any 12-year-olds out there yeah, can find jackets to wear. Needs a, needs a thrift store jacket and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm buying them to uh, repurpose them for uh, for bike riders. Anyways, they they were popular enough that I thought, well, maybe it's worth, you know, seeing if I can sell a couple and uh, yeah they they sold pretty steadily and I I could fit it in with all my other jobs and it you know sort of gave me some pocket change and uh, and also um, uh, you know it helps pay for the the rest of the blog and the you know yeah. the, the server and stuff and uh, it it also, you know, gave me something to do with my spare time, and I, I like sewing, 
and um, and then also um, it gives Ty kind of a job where he's really into 3D printing. Oh, okay. Really into 3D printing, like that—that's his. Uh, you know, he's going to university. He's um, he's the nineteen-year-old now. He's the nineteen-year-old. Okay. He's he's in university, but his his hobby, passion, if you will, is is uh, the uh, 3D printing. Cool. And so he's uh, now on like his third generation of uh, of these plugs that hold the pogies into the ends of the of the bars and uh so yeah now they're they're easy to get on and off and and uh the uh the initial ones were were pretty decent and uh and and these new ones are just awesome awesome and, and what other what other things do you make as well so then i i also do uh frame bags um I've been basically custom frame bags, so that's usually the the hard to fit um, hard to fit frames where, um, like uh, there's there's um, uh, Dale Rollingdale, Rollingdale, yes, yes, Dale Marchant, he's. Okay. Um, he he makes a lot of really custom shapes to to his bikes and okay. so um he you know those those owners need really custom bike frame or mm-hmm. bike uh, frame bags and uh so i did steve o'shaughnessy's i did um oh okay you know, yeah a few other rolling dale bikes and um uh, you know a few sort of weird uh um use cases where where people wanted to you know fit extra stuff in the frame you know maybe they've got a bottle cage uh at the back of the frame and they they want to have a a half frame for the or a three-quarter frame for the front Mm -hmm, of the mm -hmm. the frame things like that so i i do basically all custom frame bags oh cool i saw recently uh somebody had made their own frame bag and because it was for a fat bike, you know, you can make them a fair bit wider yeah. because the, uh, the, the Q factor is so big and they made it and had it built right around a bottle cage to go right inside the frame bag to hold their bottle. And they insulated the frame bag or something. I forget. But it was, it was like, yeah. that's a pretty neat idea because you have the space for it in the winter, you know, on a fat bike. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I've, I've done some insulated sleeves for, uh, for water bottles kind of, you know, most, they're not on the website. They're, they're kind of done on the sly. Um, but that's, um, yeah, kind of, you know, those, those onesie twosie cases where you're, you know, it, it's not covered by those, uh, there's, there's some really good, you know, mass market frame bags and, uh, there's some, some really, um, you know, some people manufacturing them well, um, I used to uh, always buy the uh, the porcelain rocket. Um, yeah, they recently sold to uh, who did they sell to? To Rockgeist. Rockgeist, that's it. Yeah, yeah, he sold to Rockgeist. I think now three years ago. Yeah, it's a few. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's it's a while ago. And and anyways, Scott's a good friend, and um, but uh, he would make me uh, my frame bags and stuff, so I didn't have to. 
and then <laughs> <laughs> yeah the the first uh the first bike i got after uh after scott retired was the first frame bag i had to make oh tell me um do we have time i know it's been an hour 45 i don't know how your time is but do we have time to talk about the iti because I, I know we kind of it came up in conversation a few times we didn't really dive into it but what yeah. year did you do it and uh i did it yeah. in in 2002 which was the first oh, wow. year of the iti the um the 2001 i think you you've talked to rj sawyer right no no i haven't no oh you should talk to him i know I he's should. <laughs> he's he's an absolute yeah yeah he's no bad things to say about him. Um, anyways, he made a movie in uh, the of the 2001 I did a bike. Um, and he covered all three lengths. They used to have a 100 mile, a 350 mile, and then the 1100 1, mile. 11, yeah. I didn't know they had a 100 mile. Okay. Yeah. And so he did a, a movie documenting the 2001 and um it's i i i bought it as soon as it came out on video after he after he kind of did the um the mountain film festival tour he put it out on uh on uh, vhs <laughs> and so i i bought that in uh in 2001 that you know if i was if i was in doubt at all before that um, I, I knew then that I really, really needed to do the, the, I did a bike. And so I signed up for the, I did a bike, but it was kind of imploding. Um, and meanwhile, the ITI was forming up as a, um, by racers for racers, um, invitation. So was it different organizers? Different or completely different organizers. It was okay. a, a set of the racers from 2001 um, who were um, kind of saw the writing on the wall and knew that they wanted to have something that was going to be that the racers could count on more. Mm-hmm. Um, so they and consistency they too as well, probably consistency and and it's um they didn't do it as a money maker they did it because people wanted to race mm-hmm. and so they um you know they charged what it cost and there was no no purse no they they didn't have to publicize and so that first year they had um room but it being an invitational they wanted to um they wanted some credentials and of course i had i had, you know i worked up north i had done a bunch of winter uh bike camping um and and i you know i i explained to them you know what my experience was and and all that so yeah they they let me in <laughs> and because this isn't before the time where like now the rules are you have to have done two races i believe and yeah um, and and things like that but at that time you know this is pre pre what do you want to say global internet uh when you know not yes. everybody had access to internet all the time and uh, you wouldn't necessarily know about a bike race in minnesota you know things like that so yeah <clears throat> yeah no i i didn't find out 
about any of these races until until later and uh so i was the only rookie that year oh wow and yeah can you believe um, that was 21 years ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's pretty amazing and then um they uh yeah so i i went to alaska and um you know um got to to meet all these you know i i read trip reports from a, a few of these people and so you know got to got to meet my heroes got to meet all the the stars in my favorite documentary yeah and uh yeah lined up and um this is there were i think three fat bikes in the race really yeah everybody else was on just yeah. like chunky mountain bikes chunky mountain bikes i had um 44 mil rims uh which were snowcat rims um and i had um on the front a two and a half inch and on the back a two and a half inch um a werewolf okay um, I don't know it. it's like a uh kind of a free ride tire like a mountain bike tire mm-hmm. but the clearance was so tight that i had to um snip i took some garden shears and snipped the side lugs off the side of my rear tire so it wouldn't rub on my stays uh, right and then um v brakes <laughs> remember <Of> those <laughs> so that was so long that was like <laughs> decades ago <laughs> yeah so i i went through my uh my pile of uh of v brakes to um to find some that uh i had some they they curved kind of inwards and and i think it was decorative more than anything because it certainly wasn't functional but what it did was it it meant that i the brakes actually would clear the the uh, tires because standard standard v brakes if you set them far enough apart to fit the 44 mil rims the wire would drag on the top of the tires and stuff Oh, okay. <laughs> there was all kinds of weird That's issues wild. back then. Yeah, so I found these these V brakes that would fit and um yeah, modified up my uh my standard uh, Rocky Mountain Hammer Race mountain bike. Now, let's let's remember that back then there were no GPS maps. There were no no phone maps. Um did they have even GPS trackers? I don't think so. Like I don't not not publicly available, I think. Yeah. Or they, not for the majority. I, definitely I think spot trackers might have been oh, they okay. were invented around that time. And the first few years spot trackers were not allowed on the ITI. Oh, okay. Um and so did you guys use paper maps? Like was it file like I had paper maps. I had I had a set of uh, I had a compass, and I know how to use it still. Of course, and, who doesn't carry a compass if they're in the backcountry, right? Yeah, <laughs> and 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 a and a set of uh, a, a set of uh, what do you call them uh, maps? Uh, Topographical. Yeah, a set of topo maps, mm-hmm. and then I had um, one of the uh, sled dog racers had a trail description like a sort of point by point trail description oh, okay um that was written 
I didn't really understand that, you know, you had to take it with a grain of salt because he might not have slept for, you know, 28 hours when he passed through a region. And, and so you might get the hallucination version of the trail notes. Anyways, so I had a set trail notes, a, a topo map and a compass, and, uh, and then following other, other people's tracks where, where I could find them, uh, which m- most days I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, race like that, you know, you're, you're racing essentially with other people. So you, you, I think every day I saw at least some people and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, I mean, it's, it's a super scenic route. Like it's, it's not a, um, it's not a flat trail at all. No, I've heard that. It's, uh, it's yeah it's super up and down you go through a pass in the alaska range um north of north of denali but in the same range and um yeah rain rainy passes up there it's uh absolutely beautiful beautiful mountain scenery um the uh then rivers and swamps and and you you can't ride a bike there in the summer because the trail doesn't exist in the summer. Right. It's it's totally, kind of like the Route yeah. Blanche, yeah. It's, there's nothing yeah. there. It's just it's, a, only it's winter. It's like the Route Blanche. <clears throat> you you can't. You know, some of it goes down rivers. Um, some of it is is across you know swamps and lakes and uh, like yeah, it's it's stunningly beautiful. Um, that that's you know, one of the things I, I most treasure about it, uh, looking back is, mm. is just the, the beauty of it. And then, you know, and it's an adventure, like yeah, you're, you're out in the cold and, uh, I learned some, some important lessons. Here's, here's a pro tip for you. Sure. If you decide to sleep, if you decide to sleep on one of these routes, um, don't, don't get in a room with a bunch of ultra endurance racers. Cause, uh, I think I described it in my blog post as uh, they they sounded like the testing room at the chainsaw factory. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, so tired they endurance. snore like nonstop. Yeah, ultra endurance racers snore unbelievably loud. Well, I was watching that. Um, I was oh, I forget the name of it, but there's the more recent documentary. Um, what's it called? Yeah. Something to Gnome. I forget. Um, yeah, yeah, a safety to Gnome. Safety to Gnome. And um, you know, the one guy who was racing, he's like, I just don't. I sleep outside. You know, he's like, that's it. I sleep outside. Yeah. I get a better sleep. It's not. I'd even yeah. he'd go hang his stuff up maybe in the building and then go sleep outside. You know, let his stuff dry while yeah. he's getting a good sleep outside away from everybody. Yeah. No. It it took me a few nights to uh, to discover that, but yeah, I I definitely uh, I slept outside. Most so how, of the night. how many days did it take? I mean, it's a way different thing. Like you said, on two and a half inch tires, there must have been a lot more hike a bike sections than you would have if with four and a half or five inch tires. You know? Yeah, totally, totally. And that that was something. Um, so Ray Molino is kind of the inventor of the of the fat bike. Mm-hmm. Um, he he created the Remolino. Uh, he created it because he was. Um, uh, a guide. He had a guiding company in the uh, Mexican desert, uh, in the Copper Canyon, and 
So he thought of it as a, originally as a sand bike. Okay. And then I, I met him on the ITI. He wasn't racing. He was touring. And he had a, a massive, massive hunk of bacon uh, strapped to the rack on his bike. He was conventional touring rack. I thought, man, just in case a polar bear comes, he throws the bacon and. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, uh, he was, he was riding, uh, he was riding this, this fat I was so jealous because, you know, there'd be tracks without footprints beside them. Uh... And, uh, <laughs> yeah, there was, there was only one fat bike tire at the time. And, um, and then there was, uh, uh, another choice, uh, um, specialized made these big hit pro tires as a, as a downhill tire. And they're probably the worst downhill tire ever because they had really compliant sidewalls. Okay. Um, which is great for fat biking. Yeah. Yeah, and they were like three inch, the the most generous three inches wide you've ever seen. Um, and so yeah, they were like fat bike tires. But yeah, those those were kind of the choices at at the time was these Remolino tires, which mm. were like sewn together two inch tires, where they just cut the sidewalls off two two tires and sewed them together, and oh my god, and then s- sealed the seam down the center. That's awesome. Um, yeah they um anyways so um i'm i was so jealous of of ray molino's ability to ride his bike and then uh um pierre oster had a custom single speed fat bike uh a one-off uh from a a guy in palmer alaska kind of the grandfather of of, or the other grandfather of the fat bike Mm -hmm where he had the first sort of semi-production uh, fat bike. Uh, and then uh, another mainstream company uh, copied it and called it the Surly Bugsley. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, there was, there was, you know, less than a handful of, of fat bikes in that race. Yeah. There's a brand that's out of Alaska now still uh, that a lot of people nine nine eight or something I forget what it's called. Uh, there's nine o nine o seven, which is Alaska's area code. Oh, is that what that is? Okay. And um, yeah, um, I get into that. I'm also a telecommunications nerd. <laughs> um, but um, a- anyways, nine o seven being their area code is is a diss on Alaska. Um, in, in the telecommunications world um, because uh, the the higher numbers and the zeros were longer to dial. So oh, yeah, that's right. Places yeah. Got, got the coveted one as the center digit and less important places like Alberta got the zero as the, as the center digit and the less important you were, the higher your outside numbers were. So 907 is... It's pretty long, yeah. It's aside from going nine oh nine, it's about as fast. <laughs> second, yeah, it's like the third worst area. Code yeah, to yeah. Dial. And um, not like us, Ontario anyway. six one three people, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, so, so then um, the other company out of Alaska is now. Um, 
Corvid. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not sure I know that brand. They're, they were Fatback Cycles, and then they had a bike called, I think, the Corvid. Okay. I could be getting that name wrong. Anyways, they're, they're the other brand out of Alaska. And they were... Um, um, Fatback was right after Surly released their bike. Um, Fatback released a titanium one. It oh, was the first like sub 30 pound fat bike. That's a big deal. And yeah. Yeah. Huge. And then, yeah. So on, yeah, on the ITI, yeah, there, there was a ton of pushing. Where, did you know about things like um, gluing, you know, <laughs> heavy duty bags to your liners and stuff back then? Or was that something you kind of figured out after? Like, what was it? What was that first experience on such a major, major event, you know? So um, one of the nights I slept outside at minus 35 and um, my, my boots were... Uh, sitting next to me and they were pretty damp and they they actually froze and so when I put them on in the morning they they weren't they had kind of sagged a little bit and they weren't quite in the shape of my feet and they were like solid blocks of ice (laughs) so I got some wicked blisters from um and and then the trail was not rideable at that point so I got wicked blisters from pushing a loaded bike with these uh, with these boots. Lumpy, lumpy liners, huh? Yeah, um, and and they were actually uh, for that race I used. They were like insulated kind of running shoes. Um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Sorel made these oh, yeah? insulated, like winter winter running shoes, and so that's what my boots were. And then I had um, insulated gaiters that could go over them to keep my to keep my feet warm. Okay. But yeah, none, none of that did any good while the ice was melting because mm. they were just so so stiff and so so wrong shaped for my feet. Yeah, I think I've read since then that they say like keep your liners at least in your bag with you, you know, even if they're on your feet. Um, yeah, just don't leave them outside. Don't, don't leave them outside. All right. That's, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a bad plan. And then, uh, same with, um, yeah. Gloves, I guess. So that was, yeah, yeah, that was a valuable lesson and well, and hydration packs too. Mm. My, uh, my hydration pack was uh, I, I still use it I insulated uh, the outside of the pack and then I wear it under my clothing and so it's it's basically like right over my base layer yeah. t-shirt and then I um, cut the, the hole in the bottom of the of the pack so that I could route my hose out through the bottom so that it didn't go over my shoulder and get cold. Oh, okay. And then insulated hose. And then I've got like an insulated holster thing for the end so that 
I can cover it up and I still put it inside my jacket and I have to remember to blow back. Yeah, that's something I learned before. recently. Somebody's telling me you have to blow yeah. back. It's such a, such a critical thing. Yeah, and, and even with doing all that modification to the, you still have to blow back. Wow. Yeah, I, I was looking at recently, and I, I got an order probably is because um, I have an Osprey bag, but is the um, they, they make an insulated tube or like cover for the tube or for the hose and an insulated mouthpiece. I don't know how exactly it works, but I have to look mm-hmm. it up and check it out. Um, and it wasn't that yeah. expensive. It's like 30 yeah, it's- bucks for the thing. So it's not bad. Mm-hmm. In the grand scheme of yeah, fat biking stuff. Them, uh, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Like, yeah, my, my, uh, yeah, I'm, I just bought a, a, um, a new hub, a, what are they called? They're the fancy pants. Dynamo? Pants are quiet. No. no, no. Oh, uh, uh, so. Oh, something. Yeah. What's it called? Like a Onyx. Free- Oh, Onyx. Onyx ones, yeah. Yeah, so I just bought an Onyx hub and uh yeah, they they come in at like 900 bucks or something. It's a lot. Yeah. But um they they apparently test down to minus 50. Oh, sweet. And so they uh they some of the, some of the hubs will stop engaging at like really really low temperatures. And um, if they're like, you know, DT Swiss ones and stuff, you can just take apart on the, on the mm-hmm. side of the trail with your hands and, uh, and clean them out. And uh, same with the, uh, the Bontrager ones on the Trek bikes. You can just, you know, pull them out because uh, the grease gets stiff when it gets cold. Okay. So you can take them out, wipe off that grease and, you know, just put a drop of chain lube or something on there. Right. That's, they, they don't really need that much lube. Um, but, but they do need to, uh, the, the poles have to be able to come out. Yeah. They have to be able to move. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. So, so the, uh, the Onyx hubs use a whole different, they use a spread clutch. And did you ever hear about the, uh, did you ever hear about the big race in Yukon as well? Apparently there's a big fat bike event up there. Yeah. The, the Yukon Arctic Ultra. That's one. 430k is their longest distance and um the same company runs one sweden or somewhere norway or somewhere yeah, somewhere yeah. in scandinavia mm-hmm. um but even the the yukon race their entry is in euros oh and i want to say it's 2000 and some euros oh, okay that's a lot yeah and so yeah, the the race itself has a ton of appeal to me, mm-hmm. but on on top of travel to the Yukon, there's no way I can afford. Yeah, you need to sell a, a lot of pogies. Yeah, or, or a kidney. <laughs> Come on, people, buy some pogies <laughs> <laughs> or a kidney. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, hey, uh, Doug, you know I'm kind of timed out. I uh, I know my it's uh, 10 p.m. here, and I got to teach again in the morning. Um, but I think yeah. this is a great conversation. And, you know, I can't believe two hours have gone by. It's uh, yeah. It always yeah, shocks me uh, sometimes when you get into a good one and then you look and you go, holy crap. And then I don't hear the end of it from my yeah. wife for a week. <laughs> right. Right. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's only, uh, it's only 8 PM here. Yeah. So, you guys are earlier. You know, we're, uh, 
we're a lot easier off. All right. Well, I do appreciate your time. Uh, it was really, really cool to hear a bit more about everything. And um, and if you come to the Wendigo, let me know. Yeah, totally. I'm I'm sort of uh, yeah, kind of playing with it. I I'm just coming off a a broken collarbone. So, oh, geez. Um, I'm I'm just on the bike now. It's it's been a week. Um, and the plan then is to do, uh, have you heard of the, the global fat Viking global fat Viking? Yes. No. Uh, look it up on Facebook and it's a, it's not a race. It's a challenge. Right. And you can do 50, a hundred, 150 K uh, on your fat bike on oh, okay. this weekend coming. Yeah, right. And there's there's no conditions around it, so you could like go out for like a day ride on Saturday and a day ride on Sunday, and uh, you know as long as it adds up to mm-hmm. you know one of the whatever distance you sign up for, I think you get a sticker. Oh, cool! I have a door and, in my garage. As a school I'm teacher. Stickers are good. As, as a school teacher, you'll know people will do things for stickers. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. I'm gonna, I'm gonna check it out. Actually, I'm gonna be fat biking this weekend. So there's a there's a um, fat bike day at some golf course that have, makes a bunch of trails here. So I'm, I think they have. Oh a, yeah, yeah, we have a few. Of it those. wasn't even a discounted ticket. It was just they're promoting it as a fat bike day rather than I think all the snowshoers and stuff. So who knows? We'll see. Um, but yeah. it should be fun. Rip around somewhere new. Yeah, we're we're. Uh, we're planning on going out like for an overnighter this weekend, me and my friend guy. Um, and, uh, yeah, the plan is to, you know, just pile on the kilometers and, and, uh, I'm not sure I have 150 in me with the, with the collarbone, but yeah, we'll see. All right. Well be safe. And, um, I'm sure we'll talk soon. So thanks again for being on the podcast. All right. I will will end this and uh, you don't have to hang up yet, but I will stop the recording. So bye-bye. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, I know it was long. It just kept going. I kept thinking of things I wanted to ask him about. And uh, yeah, if you have to break this up into parts, I guess. Uh, But if you're listening to this, you probably already finished. So Good on you. One thing I didn't mention, actually, is that uh, about a month ago, a couple weeks before, no, not even a month ago, maybe two weeks, three weeks before this interview, Doug actually reached out to me and said, hey, man, I would like to offer you a set of pogies, um, you know, just as an appreciation thing for making the podcast and no strings attached, all that stuff. You know, he's like, it's just an offer if you're interested. I know you talked about cold hands. So I reached back out to him and, and that was at the point where I actually invited him to come on the podcast too because it was in my intention my list of people I'd like to get on the show and I told him I actually have the 45 North Cobra Fist pogies I got through Brockton Cyclery but if he was down I know he makes drop bar pogies and I would love to start commuting to work maybe not next this week when it's minus 30 but in the next few weeks, once temperatures maybe, you know, especially towards the end of February, early March, and the temperatures start to rise, I could start commuting with a pair, a set of studded tires and uh, some pogies to keep my hands warm because I get cold hands. And uh, he said no problem. So he's, I haven't received them yet. I think he said they were done. They'd be shipped soon. But I'm really stoked for it. So um, 
I was blown away this year when I found it. You can get drop bar pogies. I didn't even know those things existed. I've seen a few companies now. I know 45 North makes them as well. Um, but I'm really stoked to try his out because I know he makes them long and they go right up kind of almost to your elbow to keep that forearm warm and keep the blood flowing better. So, hey, I'll let you know all about it when I know more. That is it. Thank you so much, Doug, for taking the time to talk with me. I hope you guys enjoyed and uh, keep on pedaling. Bye-bye. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.